Hi everybody, it's Dan. Sorry about that. Mike and I actually went through the tenant turnstile chasing Kenneth Branagh and trying to redo our episode moving backwards in time. But somehow Mike got stuck in this time loop and I have to go back and get him. So we're going to get out of the turnstile and play the episode in the, in the correct chronological order. Thanks. We do a lot of classic films, a lot of films from the past, but we wanted to do something more recent. Um, and so that's why, speaking of time, recent past, this week we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's 2020 Tenet. Um, Mike and I just both watched it a couple times, right? Here we go. Uh, Mike, what's your overall take on Tenet? Uh, this is everything that I expected from a Christopher Nolan film. Um, Nolan strikes me as the kind of director who loves 80s movies, but is so frustrated by them because they don't, they don't come off uh, on film the way that they do in your head. There's just no budget or effects. Uh, like I said, when we covered The Dark Knight Rises, the thing I like best about Christopher Nolan is his actual formal innovation with the IMAX camera when they're trying to break into uh, the uh, the arms dealer's house in Bombay. And you see, you see the tall house and they're on like the 25th floor with night behind them. That's the Christopher Nolan shot. And there's not actually a lot of modern directors that could have a shot named after them, but that's like the Christopher Nolan signature. And so this, this is a Christopher Nolan signature movie. If you like the kinds of things that he does, you'll love this movie. Uh, if you found yourself annoyed by Inception or by Dark Knight Rises or The Dark Knight, uh, this movie's not for you. But if you found yourself annoyed by the original Dark Knight, you should, it's, maybe it's just you. Maybe it is just you. I found myself, um, I, I was laughing through a lot of the film and, and like many other people I'd read about, you know, do you, you have to watch it with the captions on. It's, um, it's very, very complicated. It, it's, a, it's a little long and, and all those things, you know, I, I don't really have an argument against them. I did watch it with the captions on. But what I thought about was complexity in movie plots. So this is the kind of movie when it's over, you start discussing it. And if you've rented it, you use up more of the rental period to perhaps watch it again, like someone on this podcast uh, named Dan actually did. But I started to think about complexity in movies. And I thought to myself, all right, what's a good example of a really complicated plot in a film that's not sci-fi? So I thought about Chinatown. Right? Chinatown, unbelievably complicated plot, wonderful film, right? Um, which we should do actually on the podcast pretty soon. But in Chinatown, you need to keep the plot straight. You need to follow it or you lose a lot of its impact. You have to follow what's going on with John Houston and Faye Dunaway. And, and you have to follow even things besides, you know, she's my sister, she's my daughter. You have to follow what's going on with the water. You have to follow like what Jake knows when to get the maximum impact from, from that film, the maximum impact of what happens at the end. In this one, I think the complexity is of a different nature because there are parts where you barely kind of get what's going on, but it's still a lot of fun. And that um, there are things that Christopher Nolan certainly could have dumbed down a little bit. Like for example, the whole way that the protagonist gets introduced to Kenneth Brown, I guess through means of this Goya painting, that story is so convoluted when Michael Caine explains to him with the painting and it was a fake and she was close to this guy. And, and then that could have been done in, in three sentences, how he gets close to him, right? But I think that the fun of the film is that um, you don't need to exactly grasp what's going on at every moment. You're along for the ride. So I think Christopher Lowell, let's let you, he, he, um, he lets you have it both ways. 
It's not a completely cerebral exercise because there's tons of James Bond stuff in it, right? That's really, really exhilarating. You said the Christopher Nolan shot, how they get into um, Sanjay Singh's house with the bungee cords. But it, it made me think about complexity in films and how far can you push that as a director? The, it seems to me that in order for Nolan to get into a project, it's got to be saturated in drama. And for him, drama is needing to watch a scene twice uh, to understand it. It's uh, large crowds, right? This movie begins with the, the siege of an opera house. If you told me there was a modern director who filmed the siege of an opera house during a performance with a bunch of masked men who are kind of mumbling to one another because they have oxygen masks on, I'd be like, oh, is, it, is there a new Christopher Nolan movie out? You know, again, it, it, bears his, it bears his signature. It's got his thumbprint all over it. Um, but as you said, this film is not that complicated. It's certainly not as complicated as people make it out to be. Um, the intricacies of any given scene, like the way a fist flies when somebody's punching at themselves coming back from time or something like that, okay, maybe. But the, the overarching plot of this is not that complicated. Uh, and as you're told into the movie, uh, don't think about it. Don't try to intellectualize this. Uh, just feel it. That's what he's told the first time that he picks up an inverted bullet by making the motion that he would have made uh, if he essentially dropped it and it flies back into his hands. Yeah, that's actually, you just stole my moment, but that's okay. More proof to the viewer that we don't talk about these beforehand. In our second part, we always talk about our favorite moments and that was going to be mine, but I think that is a good, I think that is a good way to approach the film. She says, don't try to understand it. And then he says, the protagonist says, yeah, it's instinct. So instinctually, I think the film delivers in a way that if you sat down and, and, and tried to parse every single scene, that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, absolutely. However, I mean, there's, there's a couple of ways to, to think about this. Um, the, I think the best being uh, to imagine time a, a, as a kind of space, meaning that if you just imagine that the people that are attacking Earth are like a long way away, um, that does just as well. And there's some kind of teleportation device from, the, you know, from a being a long, a long way away. And that's, that actually begins thinking about time space, like in terms of Einstein actually solves a lot of the complexities and the problems in this movie. All right. Well, we'll go grab our copies of Einstein and we'll see you in part two. Hi, welcome back. So in part two, we'd like to talk about our favorite moment or a moment we think represents the film as a whole. Mike, what was yours? Mine is when he beats the uh, three Russian goons with the cheese grater, Love that. which is maybe the best punch in movies since um, I, I think that uh, Watchmen from a couple of years ago was a, was a big flop. It's not one of my favorite um, movies at all, but the, the impact of hits in that movie uh, is certainly very memorable and the way that action scenes uh, are done, it, it, it very memorable. That's essentially my entire thesis for the film. That's a, ex an extraordinarily fun moment you don't know what he's doing. It's, it's high drama and high tension, which is what makes the dialogue uh, snap. You know, I think Christopher Nolan understands the way that you use tension and complexity to add enjoyment to scenes, to layer enjoyment um, onto scenes and to add drama to the camera, to the actors, et cetera. And that's really what this movie is about. This movie is not an exercise in the nuances uh, of time travel. It's a, uh, it, it doesn't care about the ecological subtext of its plot uh, as much as it claims to at all. It's about a man beating other men with a cheese grater and they're armed and he's not. And that, that's essentially it. It's a James Bond movie. Yeah, plus all the time. I mean, I think that um, 
uh, John David Washington, I think he was a great, great spy. I mean, he was, I think he was utterly convincing. I was glad that I hadn't seen him in, in anything before this because it was very nice to have, you know, just to have him to, as the protagonist and come into this world. I thought he was a terrific spy. And I thought that the cheese grater fight was, he says, you know, why did I order my hot sauce an hour ago? So he does the action hero line and then cleans house. And he does very well when he fights himself. Um, my moment was when Cat um, uh, sees herself dive off of the ship. Now that's a great time travel thing. We've seen that in a lot. And it, I wanted to talk for a moment about time travel in movies. One of the things I thought about when I watched this is this movie is, is, the, is Primer with money. Now, if you're listening to this out there, you may not know the film Primer. If you haven't, go watch it. It's a 2004 movie directed and written by Shane Carruth, famous low budget film where he can only do one take for each, each, um, uh, one take for each scene. And you've seen Primer, right, Mike? A uh, hundred times. Right. So, exactly. Right. Because it's the movie that the man, it's 90 minutes, right? In and out 90 minutes, low budget. And it's about two guys that make a time machine. They keep it in a storage facility. And the premise is you go into this box and you, you set it for when you want to come out. You let the day go by. Originally, they say, well, let's see what the stock market does today. We'll know what it is at the end of the day. We'll go back to the beginning. We'll live through the day knowing what we know because information is power, right? Unlike a tenant where ignorance is our, is our, is our only weapon. We'll go through the thing, come through it again. So in Primer, you kind of like go through a loop and you set where you want it to go. When I thought about Time Bandits and, you know, Back to the Future and, and 12 Monkeys and in um, the Harry Potter film where Hermione goes back in time and she can kind of see herself. This one's a little different about how time travel works in this. She sees herself dive off of that, off of the yacht. But there's also, I think, the exhilaration of the car chase when he goes back and he sees his own car there in front of him and doesn't know it's his, or when he has to fight himself. And I think that's kind of how Christopher Nolan upped the ante. And I was wondering how you, how you place this in the context of other time travel movies. I agree with you, except that, of course, um, this moment steals a, a thing right out of primer, which is then you, re you go back and you realize that he's working out in the lighthouse um, you know, for, for a couple of weeks or whatever it is, yeah. because the other him is doing something and we still don't know what it is because it chronologically it's already happened but in terms of our viewer chronology which is separate uh he's going to do it right after this this film okay yeah when i was 17 or 18 i think i would have watched tenant and then gotten out a piece of graph paper and different colored markers and made all the different timelines and stuff and i'm, I'm a lot I'm a lot less interested in that now because what i admire isn't so much the complexity of the time travel as the audacity of Christopher Nolan inventing this whole world with the turnstiles and with the, with the algorithm and you know splitting it up in three and burying it in time. And I think that the audaciousness of the plot is what makes it fun. It's, a, it's, a kind, it's time travel is a kind of metaphor for the complexity of making movies. So this kind of harkens back to what we talked about with Heat, right? You could give me, you could give Mike Tockle the script for Heat and you could have me try to uh, do the scene and you could be like, okay, these guys shoot these guys and this guy gets shot and he doesn't hear and their shell casings here. And I could call action, but I would be lost. Whereas it's the director's job in the middle of filming an audacious scene like that, like you just said, to really be the organized mind in the middle of all that chaos. And so it seems to me like some of what appears to be chaotic is, is almost a kind of metaphor for the chaos of making, of making film and enjoying the enjoying the output and the audacity and, and and what inspired me to that reading is really that a lot of the fight scenes that we see are exactly the same footage run forward or backward in other words it is the camera that is producing the effect of time travel in this movie in the scene where uh, our protagonist fights himself yeah directing a film is a kind of time and, and seeing a film is a kind of time travel as well
Welcome back. So in part three, we like to talk about the title, the ending, the big ideas. Uh, Dan, I already got into some big ideas in, in part two, uh, but you look like you got something. That's okay. We can go ahead in time and put them into part three if we have to. That's, that's no problem at all. I think it's fun to think about this film because when you read about people, uh, um, people's reactions to it, um, some, some people gush over it because they say it demands rewatching. It's better on a second time and a third time. Some people see that as a criticism. A, a film should not require you to watch it two or three times to grab its plot. Now, first of all, all great films demand rewatching. Even some okay films demand, demand rewatching. That's not a criticism at all. But it's funny a couple things. One is that I love how Christopher Nolan has to help the viewer in certain ways. For example, when you go back in time, or you swim against the stream of time more accurately, you have to wear a mask because air is different. That's to help the viewer. So that when Kenneth Branagh is in the scene, the great car chase scene, he's holding up his three fingers, you know he's from the future. At the end, when they have the briefing and Ives says, okay, the red team will, will wear these, um, will wear these um, ribbons and the blue team will wear these. And they have the different color watches. That's really helpful. And when you do see the film again, there's a lot of red and blue to help you out and, and know what's going on there. He's always been interested in these kind of things. Dunkirk ha has a very, very complicated you know, time structure, the way you're told that story. But the last thing I'd say about, about this film, again, which I, which I wholly enjoyed, is that the complexity of it isn't really in the details of how the turnstile works. And there's a lot of those explanations of the film. Remember the proving window? You have to look at yourself and see yourself. Come like there's all these things about how the turnstile works and how the actual mechanics of the time travel works. There's a lot of details in that to make the film air quotes complex. But if you think about a film like 2001, the details are all aesthetic. The details about what's happening in the plot are, are barely there. But 2001, I think, is a more complex movie-going experience, even though it, it, it's much more simple in terms of its structure, in terms of its plot. You're given less by Stanley Kubrick than you are by Christopher Nolan, but I think 2001 is a much more rewatchable film and a richer experience. This is a popcorn movie uh, or you know, what I call a movie with ideas, which is somewhere between RoboCop is a movie 2001 is a film, you know, th this movie is, is a movie with ideas. It aspires to something, it uses kind of a pseudo-intellectualism to add to its drama, but it's, it's, about, it's about fun. You know, the whole yeah. subplot that you talked about, about getting, getting the painting, there's no reason to have Michael Caine in this movie, except that it's, it's almost an Alfred Hitchcock appears in every Alfred Hitchcock film. Like Christopher Nolan just has to put Michael Caine in stuff. Uh, and, you know, no arguments here. It's just, it's just a funny thing that, yeah. that he does and he's just gonna keep doing it forever as long as he can. You were talking about the grandeur of the film and the audacity of grandeur. And this is often dramatized uh, in Christopher Nolan films. If you remember that the most memorable scene from Inception is when the guy gets himself a grenade launcher and he says, you'll have to dream a little bigger, darling. And he blows, you know, he blows up a building with a grenade launcher. It's the same thing with the plane. You know, that it's, it's how can I up myself from last time? And we all know that Christopher Nolan is, is kind of climbing a ladder of audacity, which hit some of his films have been more, I think this is a much more successful film than Inception. Me too. Um, although that doesn't mean that every film after Inception has been more successful, but certainly it's a ladder of audacity. And he, he never wants to land on the same step twice. So there's kind of a meta narrative of his career that plays into the movies and, and makes them, uh, I think, more palatable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks again for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Tenet. We'll see everybody in the future. In the meantime, you can go on Twitter and follow us at 15MINFilm. Please subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and let us know what we should watch next. See you next time. Take care. Bye.